0: And you can't promise something that really isn't natural to you to promise. And what a very, very, very fine line that is. Because you make those promises and then they become a symbol of whether you love that person or not. You know, and it's really hard to make them not that way because maybe it's real important to you what you've asked. And maybe you so sincerely want to do it. But you're just not able to. You know, and that this relates to Cyrus's question, you know, about the money. You may just know. That, that I want to with all my heart, but I can't go beyond this point. I'm just not able to. And please don't make it the symbol of whether I love you or not. I may love you completely, but I have to love you with who I am. I can't love you trying to be somebody else, which is what I did when I was 19. I tried to just be, we, we just sort of decided we would make up the wife and then I would do my best to be it. And, and, you know, after it worked beautifully for five years and then it just came to pieces almost all at once because just sort of one day I came back (laughs) and we we just didn't have a relationship that actually included me and it was just a little (laughs) tricky to use it, you know. It was an unfortunate, that's what I mean, it was just stupidity because, in fact, I was perfectly fine and we could have gotten along as I actually was. I just, we just didn't know how. Do you understand? But, But that one is a very, very, very important one. Uh, because in our passionate desire, either to please each other or to be more than we are, we can make really bad mistakes that that feel like betrayal. You know, and they're not betrayal; they're just what Swami says they're unrealistic expectations. He says don't have unrealistic expectations of yourself either. We think of it as not having unrealistic expectations of them, but also not of yourself. You know, your relationship has to be based on who you actually are, or it's not sustainable. Just as simple as that. And when the real person is exposed, there's again there's all the sense of betrayal. When it really wasn't so, it was just that, that you started out trying to be someone else. And of course, we change, and we have the process of self discovery. We may think this is who I am, and then we discover it's not. And uh, that a little bit of "Good morning, who are you today?" instead of "Good morning, there you are again," you know, goes a long way in giving latitude for that. All right. Yes, Sharon. Actually, Mary, I wrote a question before I just had a comment. Which, briefly, the comment was... Bless their soul. May they live forever, and may their children always be in our school. (laughs) (laughs) Uh My feeling was wonderful. And one of the things I realized out of it was, sure, it felt wonderful to be appreciated. And if you don't have a spouse, just do it to everybody in your life. Yeah. (laughs) And you'll have more people in your life. Yeah, But, um, But then the question I have is, Now Mm -hmm. that you were talking about this, um, you know, Mm -hmm. mind-lined... Well, the answer to it, actually, Sharon, though, is this whole chapter. And one thing is, don't answer fast, and don't think it has to be settled. Well, let me think about it. Let me meditate on it. And sometimes you could actually say, over many years I I finally learned a little bit more about working with Swami Kriyananda. Sometimes his ideas are so far beyond... You know, he's seeing like a, some vision way out there and we're all right here and he'll make ideas that seem not practical, you know? And so you, when you're first working with him, your reaction is just to say, "Well, you know, you know, you go all these little things, your little ego brain just flashes out in all directions and rejects. And sometimes his idea may not actually be the best idea, but his ideas always reflect a direction of energy that is the right direction for us to go because he reads energy first And then he tries to put some specific on top of that energy. And maybe you may be closer to the facts, in fact, and you may know that there's a better way to get there. So I always now... No, not always. I wish I would say always. I I, I wish to try to not think always, what did he say, but where is he trying to go? What is he trying to accomplish? Right? And so when somebody makes a suggestion, somebody close to you, that the specifics of which you can't quite relate to, step back and say, where is he he or she trying to go? What are they trying to accomplish? And maybe the specific suggestion they made is not practical because I can't do it. But if I can tune into where they're trying to go, maybe I can find something that I can do. You know, if I had been tuned in like this when David asked me to do the bathrooms, I might have thought of some other task that I really felt I could do that would then help create where he was trying to go, which was maybe whatever you could obviously see. And he might never have thought about it. He might not have known. And so you you try to think, what's trying to happen here? And sometimes that very question, not what was said, but what's trying to happen, breaks the form, and then you, you get a whole new idea about it. That's sort of what I was saying to Cyrus. When you're arguing about money, you're never arguing about money. What's trying to happen here? What's really the issue? All right? it's late, so I think I'll let it go at that. Is that good? Okay. So we won't see you next week. We'll see you the following week. So have a wonderful time. God bless you. No. Yes, Ron? I have a general, general question. When two people are remaining, and maybe you know, there's silence between the two, and then one asks, what are you thinking? <laughs> 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 That's a <catch-cold> <laughs> what's your it depends on what you're thinking, huh? <laughs> yeah, 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 Is the implication yeah, being that you're yeah, yeah, thi- yeah, yeah. that you're thinking something you don't want to share? Is that what's the implication that you're thinking something no, no, you don't want to share? I mean the thinking could be anything. Yeah. Uh huh. I and I can see it. it's good it's good training because I'm not a play I'll keep my thoughts present. Uh huh. And Well, I think you should be very careful. If you have thoughts in your mind that you really don't want to articulate, then don't articulate them. You can say, oh, nothing much, or, you know, just uh, make up something, don't lie, but you can tell something about what you are thinking. It's very possible to be just completely vacant. Or, <laughs> you know, a lot of us are very vacant a lot of the time, so if, you're, if you've got a very guilty expression on your your face or you really are thinking something that is really pertinent but difficult, you may not get away with it. You might have to just think fast. So among things to say is, give me a moment, let me think what I, you know, I was, I was contemplating something serious, just give me a moment to think how to say it, if you know, if you can tell that you're really going to be caught. But, but you don't owe it to anybody to reveal your inner self if you don't want to. And that's just a very important principle. Just because somebody wants to know or would enjoy knowing, it doesn't mean you owe it to them. And that's sort of, a, in another context in this class I was talking about, it's a two-way street. You have to also not press when somebody doesn't want to tell you. I, I mean, the relationship that I've had with Swami over the years, is, is a different kind of relationship, of course, but I remember on one occasion particularly, essentially I forced him to tell me something he didn't want to tell me, and he shouldn't have told me. I mean, it was, I, I, didn't, I wasn't ready to know. And it was very, very difficult for me, but I kind of just wouldn't shut up until he expressed to me more than he knew was wise to say to me. And it was very disturbing to my peace of mind for a long, long time. And it really taught me a lesson, which is if, you know, if somebody doesn't want to speak to you, don't make them. And, and if you're the one trying to compel somebody to talk, don't do it. I mean, it's different to win their communication. Um, it's quite another thing to, to demand it. Also, to demand it, it's just an invasion of another person's space. At the same time, if you're unduly and, and habitually and pointlessly secret about what you think and feel... And your partner is reduced to little subterfuges, like "What are you thinking, honey? You know that's a clue that maybe you need to be a little more forthcoming also, so it goes both ways. all right does that make sense? Yeah, too much sense. Any other comments or questions Yes here's my favorite I must have given my favorite little speech here already if i haven't, i 'll give it again. <laughs> I mean, whether I have or not, I'll give it again. Um, The expectation that people have of openness and communication and trust on practically no experience of one another is probably one of the the biggest banes of modern relationships. It's it's based on sexuality without commitment. It's based on, on sexuality without even acquaintanceship you know, that uh, gives this great illusion of connectedness and mutual responsibility that has no foundation. And so a person is quite willing to share their body, perhaps, but they're not at all willing to share their heart and their mind. And yet, somehow, it's expected that you're supposed to. And you hardly know each other. And there's, there's something wrong with you if you don't trust. But why would you trust someone you've had no opportunity to find out what they're going to do with that trust? And so it's, it's, it's only natural to be a little bit reluctant. And, and it's only our extremely perverse system that makes us think that we're supposed to be um, completely trusting before we know each other. And knowing each other is just a whole lot more than just sitting down and yakking back and forth. You know, I told you my life story, now you tell me yours. Trust is based on days and weeks and years. Of, uh, of observation and shared experience, you know, not merely what does a person say, because if you're glib at all and have a fairly facile mind, you can just run the right story. But it it takes a while to find out whether or not there's character behind that story. There can be a lot of personality, but is there character behind it? And and whether there's character or not depends on whether you really want to give someone the responsibility of knowing who you are. Um, As Master said, uh, be very open with God, but be a little judicious what you say to other people because oftentimes, quote, in a moment of anger they'll use it against you or they won't have the perceptivity to be able to tell the difference between your own unburdening and your true nature. Even Swami Kriyananda talks about the fact that Daya Mata abused his openness to her because he he shared with her so much of his own self-doubt that she began to define him by what he what was really self doubt, not his character. And it, it's a very interesting, you know, she, when she wanted to have something against him, she used that against him. Now, of course, there was probably no saving that. But Swamiji himself realized in retrospect that Master had never encouraged him to go to her for counseling, and that he, in fact, he, he gently discouraged him from doing it because she was not trustworthy of the confidence he was showing her. Now, I don't mean that we should all become paranoid, but it's a very, very delicate. And another thing that happens is if you, if you give someone too many of your own um, limitations, they begin to just see you according to those limitations. Whether they use them against you or not, they just begin to uh, um, relate to you as if you were those limitations. I know I told the story in here of This was just a project-oriented situation, but in 1976, when we were writing, when we were um, producing Swami's autobiography, *The Path*, he went off to seclusion in India and left a group of us in charge of doing the actual production—typesetting, proofreading, and getting it printed and promoted. And uh, I've—I've always said, although now I really realize that it's not true. I never I never considered myself an, a visual person or an artistic person in terms of visual art. However, I did know, because I'm a communicator, I could always look at a, a page and I could tell why it didn't work. I wouldn't necessarily be able to create it from scratch, but I could always tell why it didn't work. Um, but because I so often articulated that I was not a visual artist, um, what happened was in the process of producing that book, and I, had the, I was the final authority in the production of that book, um, certain people who actually had a much more muddied sense of communication um, would not listen to me when I said, this is not correct, because they would tell me that I, I wasn't qualified to do it. But I was perfectly qualified to do it, and I began to wonder, why do they think I'm not? It's because I had told them so. right? Because, in fact, I was. It was self-evident to me and to anybody who was being objective that I had a very good eye for it. And so I, even though I still say that sometimes, I've actually stopped saying it because I can't create, but I can definitely perceive. But it was very instructive to me. Where I, I started thinking, where did you get this? And the, the person was really using it against me to make power for themselves in an inappropriate way. And I had given them the, the bullet. <laughs> That's where Master said... Don't tell your, be careful who you tell your faults to, lest, in a moment of weakness, they use it against you. So, even in relationship, there's a, a, there's just a false idea of intimacy. I remember when I was a a teenager, and I would read Khalil Gibran, as everyone would read Khalil Gibran, and he would talk about uh, marriage. And he would say, you know, be close but let there be spaces in your closeness. I don't know how he said it poetically, but it was essentially picnic together but don't eat the same sandwich. He said it more <laughs> you know he said it far more eloquently. Some of you may remember. I think it had something to do with the same loaf. But <laughs> um but I being an arrogant youngster, I thought, oh, that's too small a concept, you know. I just had some romantic ideal that why should there be space between you? You know, just total immaturity. Of course, the older I've gotten, the more I look at it, and of course, that's perfect. Um, but we we often, um, and this is the last chapter of what we have to talk about today, but I'll talk about the children's section first. We often try to just get too much from each other. We're just really looking to assuage our own insecurities, and we have a whole series of of uh, things that we think are correct in relationship which really have nothing to do with true relationship and everything to do with assuaging our own insecurities and using somebody to make us feel more secure. And then we have a whole list of all the things they have to do in order to do that, which of course they don't want to do, nor ought they to do. And even if you're unfortunate enough to have them do it, you still end up with a zero at the end because it won't work. It It just isn't the way we're made. And if you're a devotee, especially Divine Mother, will definitely dynamite it. You know, she'll just, just, there's no question about it. She'll remember that you actually came here for God, and so she'll make sure that it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, you can just rely on that. So it's a safety valve. <laughs> <laughs> Any other comments or questions? Yes, Patricia. Well, the, Cyrus asked me this question once also. I can, I can answer it again. Um, you're never fighting about money. You're always fighting about something else. Somebody today was talking about some seminar that they went to, in which there was a great distinction made between being honest and actually telling the truth. You can be honest in saying that what you know, "I don't really like what you're doing, it's really upsetting to me. You shouldn't be so irresponsible. That's an honest comment. But the truth of the situation may have to do with a whole other um, reason why you're upset. You know that it really isn't about money, It's really about how will our lives work together if you behave this way that the money just becomes a symbol. But money, I mean, of the three major delusions in life, sex, wine, and money, I mean, there, there it is, it's right there. So it, it is really, uh, I and mean, that's, a, scriptures always talk about that. Um, I have to tell you the story. Some of you already have heard it, but there was this young, when we were in Assisi in October, there was this young man there, a very outspoken young man who um, had been, uh, trying to make a lot of money, and was quite intent about money, rather hung up on money. And there was a satsang with Swami Kriyananda, and he had an opportunity to ask a question. And and Swamiji had also been talking a great deal about Yogananda's predictions about hard times and economic changes. And So in that context, the man asked the question about how he was investing in the stock market, and he was trying to accumulate a lot of money, and he just said he was very anxious about money, and and he said, you know, all three of the big delusions, sex, wine, and money, really like, hold me, and... I, you know, but then he talked a lot about money. So Swami gave about a 20 minute answer about the stock market and master's predictions and all of these different things and really talked at great length about money. And then he said, and as for the other two, he said, as for wine, cut it out. As for sex, cut it down. <laughs> it was about five minutes before the room stopped laughing. It was just too funny. The young man afterwards said, I can do that. I think I can do that. (laughs) But in any case, I say that, I bring that up in this context because money is symbolic of so many other things, but what you're really asking, Patricia, is, 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 is this person compatible with me? Do we share essential values? Do we have enough respect? Do we have the capacity to communicate about difficult issues? And you have to find out those things. That's what I was saying to Steve about you can't just assume that you're going to be able to trust each other and get along. I've said, I know in this class, it's not hard to love people. It's very easy to love people. Making a life together is a different art. And so we need to be much more restrained in our expectations of how we can make a life together. And we have to be much more objective. And above all, above all things, a person has to really know What's what one's own core values are. And if you have a clear idea of what your own core values are, I mean really fundamental, I can't go beneath this, this is absolutely where I stand values, then you can evaluate other things that happen as to whether or not they really touch those. Now, a core value for for you may well be a certain sense of responsibility and respect. And I would certainly say for myself, I would find it exceedingly difficult to relate to someone whom I considered on a fundamental level irresponsible. Now, are they irresponsible or are they merely not respectful of your particular anxieties? Do they share, are they, are they really irresponsible or are they just much more casual and you always want to be tense about it? You know, and with issues of money, many people can run money in a very casual way and it still works for them whereas another person may be always tense about it and has to be a certain way or they're certain that disaster's just around the corner so you have to look at more than just whether they balance their checkbook in the neat style that you check it you do it or whether they're always in debt no matter how much money they have you know or whether they'll make promises that they can't keep you know you it's a it's a much different issue and the main thing is slow down friend take your time you know don't just assume because we're compatible in bed, or because I like the way he talks, or because he's handsome, or because we ski together, that we can make a life together. Or you have to look at it, and I mean, although I don't usually recommend this, I have on many occasions, on several occasions, just very simply recommended that people just keep their finances separate. To me, I, it's it's not a it's not a style of marriage that I can quite figure out. But on on a number of uh, occasions, it has seemed obvious to me. That in every other respect, actually, the couple was doing pretty well, but their style of handling money was so different that it was just too freaky, so just don't combine it. Or only combine a certain amount of it. You know, don't be afraid to be creative. Don't think, oh, now we're together, we have one checkbook, we do it all this way, and then I'm upset about it all the time. You know, just set in place whatever you need to set in place so that it doesn't uh, make you too nervous. And other than that, the rules of communication are all the rules we've talked about the whole time. But if somebody's doing something that feels life-threatening to you and you can't get out of it, you're going to have to do something about it. You're not going to be able to repress it charitably, as we said last week. Mm-hmm. So, And if, if the person you're trying to relate to can't understand that, then you have a very serious problem. And you have to ask yourself, keywords, words, is this a marriage buster? <laughs> yeah. And those are keywords that you always ask. I don't think I've have I said that in here. You just have to ask that question. Many things can be endured, but some things are marriage busters because it just goes beyond what you can actually handle. But you don't want to bust up an otherwise good relationship for something that is, even though important, essentially trivial compared to deeper levels of relationship. You know, I mean, one couple that I knew, she was very expansive, and he was always worried and he always felt he had to handle the money. And then after 20 years of marriage, They had the brilliant ideas to switch the responsibility. And whereas he'd always handled the money and constantly harassed her, um, she finally handled the money and got him to just quit worrying about it. And she was perfectly capable of handling it. She just did it differently. And it was a very tricky thing for him for a while, but he finally just accepted that she really did fine. And their lives got much simpler because, you know, she was responsible, she just did it differently. And then they, they, he wasn't always harassing her about every dollar she spent. You know, I mean, that was a, you know, some situations will work like that, some won't. So you just have to be creative. Yeah. I remember I was there once when he was harassing her about Christmas shopping, and I took her side. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, for heaven's sakes, just let her get what she wants. He said, you don't know what she's like at Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> He was half joking, <laughs> <laughs> but it was. Fine. <laughs> Any other questions or comments? Yes, yeah, Sharon. Sure. Situation. Mm-hmm. Did you have to? Yeah. You the know, there was no time? way I could. <coughs> there was no way I could undo the damage I'd done, but it was. I, but I, I was, I was, I never uttered another critical word about myself from that point forward in that particular area in that context. I wished I could have said I learned it everywhere. I didn't. But I never, I was very careful. And in fact, I started chatting in, in seemingly casual ways about all the effective things I'd done. You know, I just would start, you know, not, not in a way that was inappropriate, but, but whenever there was an, uh, an appropriate opportunity I w- that didn't sound just like I was trying to make myself pop up, I would just, you know, comment about my involvement. Oh I really that's right. That was the idea that I had. It did work, didn't it? Oh look, you did you did do it just the way I thought it was. That would work, didn't it? you know, just like the ways that weren't but I kept putting my own ideas I kept drawing attention to my own ideas until there was a until I felt I'd neutralized it. Yeah. But you you know, you have to once you're in a hole, first thing you have to do is stop digging and then you have to fill it in. <laughs> yeah. And oftentimes in relationships, you do get in very bad habits of um, assumptions of uh, people's limitations, and it's it, it's very uh, it's very necessary to not get too far into that. Sometimes it forms the basis of humor. Sometimes it's just innocent. But there's a, there's a sort of a fine line between innocent and, and absolutely aggravating. There's a certain kind of teasing I know sometimes everyone. David doesn't really do it very often, but every once in a while he'll do, and I just, I can't stand it. I mean, I would be fair to him, very rarely. But there's just, there's certain places where, where you know, don't tease me about that. I'm not willing to be teased about that. And vice versa, I'll, I'll cross the line and just sort of think that something is, but it isn't. It's not a subject to joke about And Generally speaking, why do we want to use, I mean, there is just making fun of each other, or oh, as Swami put it, I once said... Uh, you know that I once accused him of making fun of me and his answer was i'm not making fun i'm merely taking advantage of the fun which is already present <laughs> he was very thoughtful when i accused him you know <laughs> so it's all right to take advantage of the fun which is already present uma who was born in england who had no she was born in manchester and came to america at 18 and just never felt at home in england and, she sort of said to Swami just half-seriously, day, why was I born in England? He said, oh, so that we'd have something to tease you about with that accent. <laughs> so there's, a, there's also a kind of sweep. But when you're really teasing someone about their limitations or really spending too much energy on because see, what happens then, when the person is ready to grow past them, that limitation, you've got them in a box, and sometimes they have to push you away in order to go grow past it. So, And it's it's part of that over-familiarity, too, where you just, oh, he never likes, he doesn't want to watch that movie. I know, he doesn't like those kind of movies. And the person never has a chance to really think about who they are now because their partner already knows them so well that they, they can't be different. So those things happen inch by inch. They don't happen from morning to night. So you have to be very conscious of it. And, of course, one can play into it. Oh, I'm like this. Yeah, that's right. I just can't do this. and One also, a kind of learned helplessness sets in. Now, I don't mean a calculated helplessness (laughs) where you just know that you're going to play this for all it's worth and get what you want. But (laughs) But as you get older, your mind freezes in the position that you've put it, and nobody put it there but you. Okay, any other questions or thoughts? Yes, Steve? Better to change your behavior than to try to get them to change their perception. Simply go back down. Be, be different and then you can, and then if you're different for a long time, you have to be very patient. Be very different for a long time. And then after that, you'll be able to say, gee, you know, I don't think that really defines me anymore. But if you start first by saying, I am grown up, I am grown up, it doesn't work, you know. (laughs) 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 And just figure it's your karmic do to be falsely accused for a while, because if you were in fact bad, then there's a residual energy in the fan. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, in religion, it's always been a tradition in religion, in in religious life, uh, when you become a religious, you know, join an order, so I'm trying to find the simple words, when you join an order, generally speaking, you're repudiating yourself, your past self, and you're taking on a new self. Swamis in India, sannyasis, they sometimes never ever say what their name used to be. I mean, some are more rigid than others. You go into a monastery and you become Sister, you know, Francis Joseph or something that you never were before because your name is associated enormously with your identity and it's a wonderful thing to cast aside. Also, um, in the tradition of India, names generally have meaning. And so the name that you call someone, you call them that a billion times. And if you're repeating the name of God or some positive affirmation, it helps, as I get into the subject of children, it helps keep you in the right set, a name set. Some of our friend in India is named Devi, a man named Devi, which is actually a woman's name because it means goddess, but his name is actually Devi Prashad, which means a gift of the goddess. So Devi Prashad was what his parents named him. So every time they speak to their little boy, he's Devi Prashad, he's the gift of the gods instead of being mine, right? <laughs> so a name can have a lot of significance, and a lot of us who were grown up in Western ways may or may not have a name that means anything. Uh, Kriyananda's, the American name that he was that he was always called, was Donald, which he, he always says means keeper of the compound, you know, which is just like, it's not like much to aspire to. It's, it be the keeper of the compound. Um, whereas Kriyananda... Means a divine bliss through serviceful action, or divine bliss through the practice of meditation. Now, there's something to aspire to. Now, the American Indian tradition, as I understand it, and this is from very superficial reading, but you would have a, a baby name, you would have a childhood name, you would have a youth name. In other words, because when you're not the same, you're not. When you were a baby, you were one person. When you were a toddler, you're another. You know, in each in each phase of your life. You really are a different consciousness. And the, and the fluidity of recognizing how fluid our our self is by completely changing our our name and what everybody calls us, and everybody sees it, I think it's a fabulous thing. And in that tradition also, if something profoundly meaningful happened to you, I mean, part of the, some of the traditions, you know, a young man, it was mostly men who would do this, you know, would go out on a vision quest and in the course of that vision quest, they would find their name. Because they, they, until then they'd been a child, now they were going to be a man, and as a man they needed a man's name, and it would be based on their own inner attunement to to what they wanted to aspire to, to emulate, to, to be like. And then if a life-changing thing happens to you and your life changed, would gee, fabulous, let's choose a new name. But now with social security numbers and passports and mm-hmm. driver's licenses and, and such a... a, a the distance from consciousness, you know, it's a very hard thing to keep up. But uh, I, I just think it's a lovely tradition. And for as for women taking their husbands' names, I just think it's a personal choice. You know, it was always automatic. And then, you know, women used to be quite um, quite suppressed by their husbands. I mean, it, it was a very short period of time ago, when women really had no rights at all. You know, just men, they were owned by their husbands. And if you left, you could never see your children, you had no assets. I mean, you know, it was a, by law, it was, an even in this country, it was a very, very suppressive context. And uh, things like taking your husband's name when, um, when the, the, when that uh, position was abused by the society or by the husband could become a very sensitive issue. Um... And there is a certain understanding of even just because I'm married, I don't cease to be myself. And if I have been known as this name, and if I have a personal identity with this name, um, and I don't wish merely because I've married to lose myself, I can understand that. I I never felt any of that. It is never related to it at all. Of course, I had horrible name. My first my my birth name was Projector, and the first name man I married was Savage, which. You know, you wouldn 't have thought it was much of an improvement, but coming from projector it was <laughs> so I, I was i was savage for after i you know after i finished being projector and by that time, my first name had changed to asha so i went back I went back for about two weeks to asha projector and then this is what happened this is all totally off the subject. this is what happened. we were giving a program in santa cruz and i had sort of reserved this room and i had signed it asha projector this was like the little period when i used this name and this man bless his heart this dear janitor who i think had risen you know to the peak of his performance in life by becoming a janitor this was a great accomplishment and he just he sort of met us before the program he was a very slow-moving man and he didn't have a lot of quickness mentally and he kept saying you know, on this form, it looks like you're asking for an Osher projector. Said, I have a slide projector. I have a movie projector. <laughs> I have an opaque projector, but I just don't have an Osher projector. I don't know what to do. There was, there was nothing. I, I mean, I tried to communicate the fact that that was actually my name, but there was just no way. So I finally just assured him that we would cope. <laughs> and that was like my little foray, and that was a dead loss. So I remained Asha Savage, which was okay. And then when I met David, I just fell at his feet. You know, Praver was such a relief. <laughs> so a certain part of it just depends on what you're dealing with. And, uh, you know, women are different. I, I thoroughly enjoy having his name. I just think it's fun. And I know some men feel hurt if the woman doesn't take his name. It, you know, on the, in the same way that it means something to women to keep it, it also may mean a lot to a lot of men. To share it. So you, you everybody has to weigh all that in the balance. And also women who are insisting on keeping their names have to ask themselves if it's some subtle way of not really wanting to commit to this situation. I'm not saying that it is, but you have to ask yourself those questions. Why am I so reluctant? Is it because you assume that you're not going to always be with them and therefore you want to keep your name? Well, then maybe you ought to hold off a little. <laughs> knows, but there's many, many reasons. <laughs> Patricia? Well, nothing ever happens that's unfair, actually. People may be wrong, but they're never unfair. They would never be wrong in that particular way if there wasn't something in it for you. And I I know myself, I've... uh, Let's just face it, we get away with a lot, you know. There's a lot of times when we we sneak by, sneak by, having done a whole bunch of bad things that nobody ever caught us at, either in this lifetime or in other lifetimes. Look around you, people get away with things all the time. You can just pretty much count on the fact that you have. So if, if you got away with it three incarnations ago and now you're being falsely accused now, it may not be so false. That's the way I look at it. Now, it may be that people are accusing you of things that really have absolutely nothing to do with you, that are just their own story. Um, but still, sometimes you just have to decide whether it's worth fighting back. depends on how, how sensible they are. But I certainly, I remember one incident in particular when people were very mad at me for something I hadn't done. And I hadn't done it, but I could have. It was just really pure luck that I wasn't guilty. <laughs> <laughs> so I just let it flow. It just wasn't worth it, because it was it was a just accusation, a false one, but not an unjust one. So sometimes that's what I meant by "there's something in there." And what Steve was talking about is you're really working on changing yourself, and somebody hasn't noticed yet. Well, just let them keep accusing you, and gradually they'll notice. Sometimes it's just better. There's just a lot of a lot a lot less fighting back creates a lot more harmony, and we just and the need to fight back is not generally really a very selfless one. It's usually from our own um, egos. You know, we're touching a lot on what's in the last chapter of this book. Yes, yeah, Sharon? Yeah, I just was... Promoting and protecting ego. Yeah, it's a big job. We do a lot of that. <laughs> and the purpose, the whole purpose of marriage is to not do that. It's. I mean, we're drawn to it because we're trying to expand our soul, not because we're trying to find a safe haven for our egos. Uh, in that you know, just to because I don't want this whole class to pass without my speaking about children, although I know we don't have a lot of parents in this room, we just have a few but still um the the whole concept of children is extremely important, not only because a lot of you are raising them but also because it 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 tells the whole story of marriage in a very real way um and And I did really deal a lot with the subject of children. When uh, In earlier classes, when I was talking about mother love, and I was talking about the perfect kind of love being the, being the ideal of mother love rather than uh, the ideals that we normally think about. And just thinking in terms of, of what's appropriate when you're relating to a child helps you understand what's appropriate when you're relating to an adult. And so I want to just talk a little bit. I'm also I'm severely hampered because I've never raised children. I've never been pregnant. I've never had a baby, so I don't really... Like, I can't tell you years of stories, and I'm sure if I had, I would have lots of stories. The closest I've come is for a number of summers. I, I take care of my nephew for weeks at a time, which has been quite a lot in the sense that I really do get the picture, you know, when you have a child living in your house. But still, I, I, I know I know it's not the same. So for that reason, I can't speak in quite the same way. However, neither a Swami Kriyananda had children, and he still has a lot to say, because we have had in other lifetimes. Um, I do feel that you know, mothering, being a mother, physically a mother is something that I just know really well. And I totally expected to do it in this lifetime. In fact, one of the reasons I didn't do it is because I realized that I was looking for a change of consciousness and that I thought I would have it through having children, but I realized that I had to change consciousness first. And then babies became less important to me afterwards because I was looking for expansion. That's exactly what's written here. But what children represent to us and and make absolutely crystal clear, is the true reality and purpose of human relationships. And for that reason, it's very important to sort of to see it right for what it is. What I'm fascinated by is by how many parents don't get it. They don't really get what it is to be a parent. I mean, what it is about being a parent is 100% self-sacrifice. As Swamiji says, they may be a joy and a comfort to you, but don't count on it. You know, it's it's just a gigantic job that's been given to you to do. One of my friends, when he got married, very impersonal man, he's had a very successful marriage. He's reputed to have said to his wife the night they got married, he said, now I want you to understand, he said, I consider this marriage a job like any other. He said, now, don't misunderstand, I intend to do a good job. <laughs> and he has, he's done an excellent job. But nonetheless, even though that sounds very unromantic, it was actually much more romantic in the sense that it was really going to work because he recognized that this is not about something that I'm going to get for myself. This is a responsibility that I've taken on. And, you know, when you have a child, either by God's will or your own deliberate choice, one way or another, you know, it's a job. Kriyananda writes in uh, his own autobiography, very charmingly, he writes about his, ba- his, his background uh, all you know, the countries and the individuals and the prominent people and the threads of energy that was his family and so on. And he says, I'd, I, I, I bring all this forward, he said, not because I think it really defined me. And then he makes the interesting statement. He said, I believe I came into this world fully myself. And that's a slightly ambiguous phrase. Does everyone come in fully myself or was he more talking about himself? Certainly more than most, he came in fully himself. But he said, I, "I say this only to show you the um, trends with which I chose to associate. In other words, that I looked at—you know—that this was this was the karmic context that was appropriate for me to be born in. It was not what made me who I am. Rather, it because of who I am, this is what I chose to associate with. And so, uh, a great deal when you're dealing with children, you have to realize." That they are not a blank slate when they come in. They are not ignorant. They are not even children. They're 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 full blown conscious souls until they choose, until they get into that teeny body, and then all they can't do is function properly. They don't cease to be themselves. And also, there's a kind of like holiday. I mean, not all childhood is happy, and some childhood is horrific from the start. But but there's a certain holiday. The ego takes a little bit of a holiday during childhood. You know, you're just not quite as connected and you're not quite as painfully aware of everything. Um, Some children are. I remember a friend of mine, when she was 10, she said to herself, being a child is terrible. I don't want you to ever forget that. (laughs) Because she just felt oppressed, very oppressed, being a child. But in any case, what I'm trying to say is, when you die with the full accumulation of your full uh, consciousness... All of that will be with you, and you will be in the astral world, and at a certain point, virtually all of us, I would dare say all of us, will choose to reincarnate and will be somebody's little baby, right, But you will never have ceased to be yourself; you'll just be somebody's little baby and so when when some little baby you know sort of appears in your womb and gradually ends up in your arms, that is some full-grown person who is just now running another story and choosing to associate with you. But they're associating with you because of who they are. They're not coming in so that you can make them into something else. Um, I don't have my board here, but I think I, I described to you before the picture that I like to draw of the rainbow arc. You know, there's a, tra- the, a, very, a very good way to think of it is there's a trajectory in motion. You know, we're a soul on our way to self-realization. And, and each incarnation is, is really a very small increment. Like in a very thick book, it's a, each incarnation is a paragraph or a sentence or a word. And it's a very small part of it. And then there's this whole story that's formed by the accumulation of all those paragraphs and sentences and words that has a beginning, a middle, all kinds of adventures and an ending point. But each one of those words or one of those paragraphs could be dropped out and the direction of the story would still be the same, wouldn't it? And And when you add to that even the degree to which childhood and then even within childhood the degree to which parents actually really define a trajectory that's so strong, if you think of each, each incarnation as a word in a book, you know, and a, and a parent is a half of one letter, depending how long the word is, he, it doesn't mean that you, you that it's not important. I don't misunderstand it, because I want to go back to that. But it's not, it's not life-defining. And a great, fantastic, enormously terrible disservice is being done to people now, because we've lost sight of eternity, and we're so concerned about the immediate present, that we try to hang all of our experiences on these little tiny experiences. You know, like I am caused by the fact that you put me in a closet when I was six. I am caused by... No, 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 no. You were put in a closet when you were six because that was the right thing to have happened to you because of the trajectory you were on. Now, maybe it would have been better if the parent hadn't done it. That's a different story. But nothing, nothing that small, nothing that happens at all in this incarnation actually causes it. It just is the forces with which you chose to associate. Because what happens is by what we associate with, we, we emphasize certain qualities and we and certain things come to our attention. There were certain aspects of my own upbringing that appeared to me to have made my, my faults much worse. And at one point I thought to myself, why was I so stupid as to associate with a family that would exacerbate my worst qualities? Mm-hmm. You know, why didn't I have the sense to go somewhere where it would be balanced? But then I realized... That because they had been so extremely exacerbated, I noticed. <laughs> it got my attention. It worked. you know. And maybe if they hadn't been made that much more extreme, I would have just sailed along not even knowing I have them. It changes things, you see. And sometimes very difficult situations are absolutely required because nothing less will really um, create the shift that's required. Now that gives us a very dynamic way of looking at our own lives, but also it gives us a very forgiving way of dealing with ourselves and our children. But nonetheless, there is a job assignment. You know, when you get the little baby, you have a job assignment, and your job assignment, this is my very, very unromantic way of saying it, you have been given a tiny, uncivilized barbarian, and you have to gradually teach it how to live. (laughs) You know, just starting with the most fundamental things of you know how to find uh, your mouth with a spoon. Just like where is it? We <laughs> I mean, haven't you seen children? Yeah. You know, it's just so exciting while they try to find their mouth with a spoon. I mean, these are very fundamental <laughs> skills, right? And they, you know, they're just a mess in so many ways. Most children. Some every so often you get one of those sterling guaranteed ones out of the catalog
1: <laughs>
0: that just have all the right qualities. A friend of mine who's an educator used to tell a wonderful story about a, a, fa- a, a, a family somewhere in Texas or somewhere and. And these parents had raised three children, and they were just like dream children. You know, as he he described it, the whole family did spring cleaning together. I mean, they were like really a dream family. And the parents were very intelligent and reflective parents, and they were so good at being parents that they actually—this was this is a true story, as it was told to me—they actually started giving seminars on parenting, and they would trot out example A, example B, example C, and you know they would show the whole thing, and it really did work. And they had a lot to say. And then, uh, much to their surprise, they had an oop treat, and then suddenly they had an infant. Parents, and the parents were intelligent enough to gradually recognize that it really all of their techniques had only worked for those children, mm-hmm. and that they they described it. This little lad, I believe his name was Jason, if I'm not mistaken. His first word was, no. And his first complete sentence was, do it yourself, <laughs> because he was oriented differently. <laughs> and they just basically had to start over because they, had, they were just dealing with a whole different karmic condition than they had dealt with three times before. So a lot of times you you just have to say, forget what anybody else says. This is what it is. This is that's where Swami describes in this chapter so clearly. Just start with who you actually have, and as much as possible, try not to notice the size of the body, but just try to tune in much more to the potential of this of the spirit. But recognize that you are the parent, and you have a job. And, and and really feel it like a job, just, you know, it's a it's a profession and you just have to do it. Swami also writes in his autobiography, he said, I am grateful to my parents for taking me, a stranger, into their home. I mean, it's just such a charming way to put it. Like, you know, he showed up in his mother's womb, but that really didn't make him anybody except somebody who just showed up in his mother's womb. He came out of the astral world and got in her womb and then came out and expected them to all take care of him for the next 20 years and that really that's the story you don't uh, you don't know who you're getting yogananda has some guidelines for trying to before conception attune your consciousness in such a way that you will draw a soul who has harmonious vibrations and there is some connecting link but it can be a connecting link in ways that don't feel very personal to you and it doesn't nece- it's not necessarily about you personally uh, Swami himself talked about in his own family, essentially, as he put it, he was profoundly connected to his mother. He said, and the rest of them came with her. Right? <laughs> so you could, so you can have a child who's just profoundly connected to some aspect of the, of the situation that you've created that isn't necessarily you at all. It's very unusual. It's not unusual, but it's, it's a great treat and one should recognize it as such to have a child that's actually a friend. You know? I mean, with all due respect, think about the majority of us. I mean, some of us have actual friendships with our parents, but many of us don't. We just have relationships with our parents. They're not people that, in a completely free choice way, you know, we would cultivate as friends. We may have grown to appreciate them, we may be grateful to them, but we may not really have anything in common, except for the fact that we happen to come into their scene and ask them to take care of us for 20 years. And that's a lot that's enough to cause us to be at least respectful and grateful but uh, to actually have a parent a child who's a friend and and that's the whole concept which is which is so fundamental which is <clears throat> the relationship between parents and children is simply not about the parents it's only about the children except in about it's about the parents in the sense of the discipline required for them to do that job properly and to do that job properly, you have to be so completely impersonal. You know, most children are not grateful and not nice. Every so often you get one or two that are, but mostly you just, you don't know until you're an adult. You raise the whole child. It's not till after it's all over. And then if the child has any refinement, they may turn around and notice what you've done. But they can't begin to understand it. Just, you can't begin to understand it as a child. I remember there was a little child who was born here And uh, she had one of those old lady faces. You know, some children are just very much more conscious of of where they've been than where they are. And she had an old lady face, and a very imperious old lady face. I mean, she must have been quite something at the end of her last life. She kept that face for a couple of years. And uh, so she had this imperious face, and... uh, she always had this look on her face, which is, "Where are the servants?" <laughs> and I, I said something to her father. I said, "You know, she," I, and I was describing this, and he was laughing because it was so much like what she was like. And I said, "But you know, gradually she lost that look." He said, "Yes, that's right, because she found her servants." <laughs> yes, my wife and myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another friend of mine, who is a very generous-hearted man, and uh, lived—he—he he had two two children, you know, in his late thirties—not really late in life, but later than some. He said, prior to having children, he said, "I thought I was an unselfish person." He said, "But after I had children, I—I I realized levels of selflessness that I didn't know existed." And he just used a simple word. He said, "Selfless means no self. That's all." There's just no self. You become the absolute servant of those children, and there's really nothing you can do about it. And I'm not talking about, quote, inappropriate boundaries. I'm talking about the fact that it's a job, and the job has really definite demands, and those jobs are that, in you know, Swami writes in there, your child will always do his best to bring you down to his level of immaturity. And then he makes the just chilling statement. And once you do, he'll never respect you in the same way again. I know I thought, God, Swami, that's a little harsh. Because <laughs> there's probably not a parent reading this who hasn't gone to that level of immaturity. But maybe he needed to make it that strong in order for a person to hear it. But you see, oh my word, now let's reverse it. What a fabulous sadhana. You know, just what a fabulous sadna, Because you are just required to completely forget about everything you think you have to have. You know, just the ego is just totally pulverized. And you do this whole thing, and then when the child is 13 or 14, they're to tell you how much they hate you. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then they do that for six or seven years, and maybe they never, maybe they come back from it, maybe they don't. Now, on the level of doing this so that we can feel good, it's pretty ghastly. But on the level of doing it for a number of reasons, one of which is just to learn to overcome all personal points of view, and to, to be anchored in truth and not in the feedback that you get, to be not dependent on other people's telling you that everything is fine. I mean these are great this is great training to have a good marriage. Because this is just calmly and steadily doing what's right and not being out there waiting for the world to make it okay. And also Swamiji said something recently that was just so charming, you know, he said if you're happy it's a delusion and if you're sad it's a delusion. <laughs> Meaning that this is none of this is really happening, and if the conditions of our lives tell us that we're really sad now because our our child is being like this, or we're really happy because our child is being like this, it's an it's equally a delusion, because we are the immortal self. None of this really defines us at all. These are just waves on the ocean, and if we're terribly happy because the wave has gone up, or terribly sad because the wave has gone down, they're just waves on an ocean, folks. We're just the ocean underneath it. So to have the the strength of character or to use your child-raising experience to develop the strength of character on an absolute, everyday, utterly inescapable basis, and to see it as sadhana, to see it just as my job is to learn how to be a good parent. And my job as a parent is to provide for this child in the best example, the best reflection, the best discipline, the best opportunity that I'm capable of doing. You know, you wanted it done better, you get somebody else. Right? (laughs) I remember a friend of mine when her child was five and he got very mad at her and he just announced to her as children will do, I hate you, you're a terrible mommy. And then he ran out of the room. But he wasn't satisfied. So he came back in and he said, you were not even my first choice. (laughs) And she was fascinated by that. And she says, well, darling, who was? And he said, a lady in the Philippines, but she was taken. <laughs> and so she told me that story. And then I told her how Master describes the moment of conception. And Yogananda says that the soul enters in the moment of conception. That's you You asked that question. He said, in the moment of conception, there is a flash of light in the astral world. When the, when the egg and the sperm come together, there's a flash of light in the astral world. And all those souls... Who are ready to be born, who are in tune with that flash of light. And this is how he describes it rush to try to get in. And sometimes two of them make it, and you have twins. So I told her that story. I mean, I used to work in department stores when I was like a late teenager. And I remember on sale day, you know, you just sort of, they, they kind of be lined up out there. And then you'd open the door and then they'd race in to get the first bar, because that's the image I always have. They're kind of lined up in the astral world and they see it's about the moment, you know, and then they kind of push forward. Well, I told her this and my friend said she started laughing. She said her son has sort of a fatal flaw to his nature. He really wants something, then he'll stop for a minute and think about it. <laughs> so she could just see him sort of really wanting to be born to that particular mother and then just hesitating too long and somebody got him <laughs> Now that's a very odd sort of story, isn't it? I mean, from the way Yogananda describes it, about that it could have been any one of a number, but this is the one. Of course, everything has a flow. But it also helps you impersonalize a little bit the one that you happen to get. That's why Yogananda says it's very, very important the consciousness that the couple has when they're conceiving a child. And in his guidelines for conceiving a spiritual child, he recommends that you be celibate for six months, that you meditate every day, that you pray, that you call... To the astral world, that you come together with an extreme consciousness of what you're trying to achieve in that conception, to really draw so that the flash of light is just so. Now, I know a lot of pregnancies, which I never knew when I was a child, just happened. <laughs> so it's the whole total consciousness of who you are. But it's it's very interesting, isn't it? There was one more thought. Oh, it's gone away. Any other questions, or comments, or thoughts? <laughs> Yes, he says it's a struggle. Life is a struggle from the very first, even to just get born into that. Oh, I know what I was going to say. I have heard that Yogananda said this. I have never read it, that if it's sometimes when a child wants to be born, he he or she, the soul, will project erotic thoughts into the room. (laughs) I have no idea if that's true. Funny thought. I just adore that one. <laughs> yes, Carolyn. Uh, I had a question about. It was a very interesting context. Here no, on. no, you chose the whole context. You needed the karma of an early divorce. You needed the karma of being isolated with one parent or separated from another, or the or the qualities that it would emphasize in you to be caught in a in a bind like that. You know, so it, it, you you did cho- choose those parents because. Maybe only wanted one of them, or or maybe we needed to have your heart broken in that particular way, for what it would gradually bring to your attention and allow you to work with. Okay, now don't you, you shouldn't get too superstitious about that. I I remember um, a young man, a man who Brian Powers, who works a lot with teenagers, once we were sitting with Swamiji in an informal situation, and he said because all the kids have grown up in this Ananda environment. The Ananda children grown up in the Ananda environment with this philosophy. So when a, a teenager gets really mad at their parent and says, I hate you, you're a terrible parent, the parent gets to say back, it's not my fault, you chose me. <laughs> so then the teenagers will go to you know some sympathetic other adult like Brian and say, I would never have been so stupid as to choose them. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so then Brian says, what do I say? <laughs> and I mean, of course, there's many things to say, but Swamiji says, you don't really choose every detail. You may choose, you may, you may choose broad streams. So you can't say that every little tiny detail was you know, like your deliberate choice and you have to find positive meaning in it. You may have chosen, like Swami said, to be with this woman as a mother, and then you just kind of take everything else that comes. But it may not be profoundly meaningfully or important to you. It's just this is what's important, and the rest of it kind of happens as background. So you don't have to stare at every piece and try to draw deep personal meaning. It may be, I don't know if it's true, but it may be, for example, that you really don't have much of a relationship with the absent parent, that they were just a means to getting with this one. And, and so that, the, that it isn't like you have to spend a lot of time contemplating that. They were just an instrument for, for your incarnation. It is, after all, just a body. In another context, and I mean, I'm talking to parents, not to children. I say this sometimes to children, uh, grown. I mean, about to to people about their parents. But someone was speaking to Swamiji once, just saying, basically, you know, these parents, they're fine, but they don't. I know, I don't have any connection to them. And Swamiji said, sometimes, especially for devotees, but sometimes, as he used the phrase, you just get a body where you can, (laughs) right? Because. And you really don't want, you deliberately do not want to have much connection because you have something else that you want to do and you don't want to be burdened with it. And he said, especially for people who are going to be very serious on the spiritual path, you don't want to have all that conflicting energy. So you deliberately choose a place where you just have very little connection so you can get a body, get raised, and get on with your life. And now you may have children like that. You may have children. I mean, often parents who have more than one child will tell me, you know, this one really belongs to me, and I don't know where these came from. <laughs> I remember one poor mother had twins, one of which was very dear to her, and the other one she just really couldn't care about at all. When another person told me that the reason they had two was that the first one was so odd, they just couldn't stop there. <laughs> odd in terms of, of what they they conceived of as the mother-child bond. <laughs> And there was nothing really wrong with the person. It just it, it was the child wasn't a friend; it was just a person getting a body. So don't try to squeeze blood out of a turnip. Just do your job. Yeah. This also how, could be like, sibling.
1: No, right? I was going to say it could sometimes be for a sibling.
0: Well, quite easily. I mean, you just the siblings aren't important. The Swamiji described. I mean he has relationships cordial relationships with his family, but his his reason was his mother, and everything else was you know became a package but and that's why it's just not once you have reincarnation, you can relax a lot. you know people may not want to have those connections there's this or else they're there trying to learn them, and they're just doing a crummy job of it, or they could be enemies. Yogananda said sometimes enemies are born in the same family so that you can fight it out at close quarters. Isn't that a charming thought? <laughs> you know, somebody that you really have a terrible enmity with, but because you have so much enmity toward them, they're, you're connected, and you, you get born in the same family. So you can have a child who's an enemy of yours. It could be a person who did... you know. Again, if you stop thinking in terms of little babies and, and big people... If you, if you imagine yourselves all as having previous incarnations, could have been somebody who really done you wrong. Or it could be a debt you paid. Maybe you really treated them badly, and this is a debt you have to pay. You just owe this person something. And then you, you might owe them 18 years. And then when they're gone, it's like, wow. In terms of, of from, from manifestation to self-realization, but it makes a lot of difference to you. And I mean I mean t- let's be fair about it, it also helps them, but you're just mm. I just it, it, it's vitally important because this is the eternal now and everything is created from this moment. You know, tomorrow is created by today, the next right. minute is created from this moment, and every you have to give it now. you'll have to give it everything now. Even though in the big picture you're not you're not creating anything, you're just yes. participating right. The concept of job is a really good concept for all for marriage and for family. Nobody likes it, but it's a very good concept because we really know how to do a job and we understand what the parameters of a job are. It's very satisfying, it's very creative, it's very challenging. It's just great, but it, it doesn't... It's not who we are. You know. Does that make sense? All right, let's take a short break. We'll come back for a few minutes. During the break, uh, Joyce and I were having a conversation about parenting and in in discussing it with her, a very clear articulation of the whole project came and I I wanted to share it because I think it's really helpful. When I was talking about your job as parents is to help civilize your children, and Joyce was saying, well, what is the point? The point of being a parent is to help expand the awareness of your child. And you can say it's to expand it towards self-realization if they're inclined, But the whole project is to help them become more self aware. I mean to expand awareness and self awareness. And and what so wherever you're standing with your child, what you're trying to do is you're trying to give them a bigger reality than the reality they have. And it's really interesting because it just works all the way through from the very beginning of, you know, teaching them to be potty trained in how to tie their shoes to having a teenager try to understand the implications if you you know, if you smoke marijuana every day. These are the things that are going to happen. To you. you need to expand their awareness of what's going to happen. This action brings this result, and that's where the the solidity and the clarity of a parent really helps make that happen. Uh, and the more clear you are with your within yourself, the more effectively you can do it. But uh, it just kind of, and then you don't have this big idea that all child have to meet have to meet any standard. It's that wherever they are, you want to expand their consciousness from that point to the next, and you can see. It's a big job, and you can also see so you can only expand them in, to the extent that you understand. Also, so it becomes a, a challenge for the parent too to develop um, enough dispassion to understand what is really next for this child. I was—I um, read a, just a magazine article about Meryl Streep. You know, of course, she's a great actress, and she's also a devoted mother. And um, I know nothing about films really, but. Apparently she took an uncharacteristic role as some kind of an action figure, and uh, they were sort of doing an interview with her about how she sort of moved from being such an intellectual actress to being such a physical one in this role, and she made reference to her second or third child, who, she said, essentially was interested in nothing that she was interested in, you know, and she'd raised her other children. In, in, because they were sympathico spirits and, and they were interested in what she was interested in. But she had a, a, this child was a very physical child. And in order to relate to him, she had to take up skiing and sports and things like that. And so she sort of became uh, interested in things that she'd never been interested in just to find a bridge, uh, for this, uh, lad. And then as a result, it opened up a new dimension for her that she used in her profession too, because it had never occurred to her to, be that kind of a person. A friend of mine uh, was telling me that when her son was in his teenage years, um, he used to really like to watch sports on television, and she had just zero interest in it, I mean less than none. But during those years she read the sports page every day and she would sit with him and watch sports, not because she cared at all, but because it was a way of keeping the link. And as they would sit there and relate about the sports, then other things could happen. So much so that he actually, you know, um, he gave her gifts later on that related to her interest in sports, right? (laughs) And she decided at some appropriate time she had to tell him. (laughs) But she was rather proud because she had really just pulled it off, you know. (laughs) Because that was her job to stay linked to him and not to demand that he come into her world, right? And because it was a job was an assignment that she had. Now, of course you balance those things, but you see, you can see what I mean, how this has to work. Okay. Any other comments or questions? Yes? Well I mean, to me that just seems really obvious that it's not only expanding your child, it's expanding, expanding their, you. Their, working from their reality. I think it's important to reach other people's reality. Well in the last chapter, I mean the last chapter we're dealing with tonight, expansive marriage Swamiji talks about one of the great benefits of having children is that it just really does expand your world. And through them, you relate to all sorts of things. You're brought, you're, you're forced to relate into a big, to a bigger reality than you would if you didn't have those children. And Swami talks in general about the whole purpose of marriage and relationships is to become expansive, to move out of our little ego thought into something else and the, that we can, um, we either use relationships and family to to emphasize the ego or we can use relationships and family to help dissolve the ego and he and he talks about just you know he has some very strong paragraphs that are just really excellent about just not you know if we go into relationships with the thought of fulfilling our own security uh, we're just sunk a marriage represents a reinfor- for many people marriage represents a reinforcement of their natural egoic tendencies an attempt to buttress their fragile sense of security and self-worth. These are very pointed phrases. But for those who approach life in an adventurous spirit, for those who seek constant self-expansion, marriage represents a glorious opportunity for self-development. And so that's the sort of fine line that we're always walking. Why are we joining together in relationships at all anyway? Is it to buttress our fragile sense of self-worth and security? Or is it really because we see it, as Swami said, selfish people marry for what they can get from one another, generous people marry for what they can share with one another. And uh, the more a person's sympathies expand outward, the greater his or her fulfillment. And the more those sympathies shrink inward upon the ego, um, or just thinking of our family as I and mine, the more deeply that person experiences insecurity and annoying sense of unfulfillment and so often you know we get into these relationships and we're just certain that they're going to buttress our sense of security and self-worth and they don't because it's inherently it's a delusion but it it, it, but it doesn't mean that we can't be kind to each other but the degree to which we think that anything outside of ourselves is really going to be the answer and the, the degree to which we enter the relationship with an inward pulling energy i mean a, a, a toward me pulling energy i don't mean inward in a spiritual sense but that we enter it with how how you're going to relate to me and what you're going to give to me and the degree to which we parent with the point of view of what you're going to give to me that's the extent to which we suffer just as simple as that and and swami emphasizes and i emphasized in the very beginning of this class from the book also you know, we are responsible for our own happiness 100%. And it's a tricky business, especially with children, especially when children are young. I remember watching um, at Ananda Village, Hansa Temple. Those of you who have seen it, up on a hill like this, commands a view of the whole area. And it used to be where we had our publications business, and there used to be a porch out there. And a lot of times at lunchtime, we go sit on the porch and have lunch, and you could just sort of see the whole... Vista, and I remember sitting up there once. And there was the, the you sort of look down this hill, and the driveway comes in over here. And there's a, the, the mail room used to be over here, and the market would be here. There was a little driveway between them, you know, maybe 50 yards, 100 yards. And I remember, and the sound carried uphill. I remember a man sort of pulling up in his car and getting out of his car to go check the mail. And his daughter, who must have been about five at that time, an adorable five year old, saw him screamed so loudly with such joy that i heard it perfectly clearly daddy daddy like that raced across those 100 yards and just flung herself into his arms and i thought boy how could you not grow to rely upon that you know and and it's not that you should be hard-hearted if god gives you a beautiful experience it would be it's ungrateful not to accept it You know, if you're in a beautiful meadow and you see beautiful flowers and you close your eyes because those flowers are going to wilt. You know, of course, you just take them for just what they are. But the extent to which we allow ourselves to be defined by it or consider ourselves expansive because you're mine. See, what you have to do is you have to expand. You have to use your love relationships, whether they're your spouse or your children. You use them... To, to learn how to expand to include greater other realities than your own. And if you just expand to include this one, and then just shut it up again, like us four and no more, as Yogananda used to say it, you know, my wife and my two kids. And Swamiji said, there's a certain kind of ego that's my family. You know, and you, you'll do all kinds of unspeakably selfish things in the name of the family. You know, just because what you've done is you've expanded, but you've shut the gate again. You haven't understood that what's really being taught to you is to just embrace all of reality. And of course, you have a job right here. And, he, and Swami touches it so perfectly. He says, but you have to understand that loyalty is the foundation. And you have to learn to be first, to be loyal to your own. But to be loyal to your own in the sense of doing your job in relationship to them, that's what it means, is different than just shutting yourself into this tiny enclosure. I remember, um, well, Swamiji is always very big on loyalty. You know, if if someone needs your support, it's very important that you support them. You you need to stand by your own. Sometimes you have to be silent when sometimes you might otherwise speak up in order to not um, betray, in the sense of desert, somebody who's close to you. It's not. It's not more fair. There was a, a couple once, and um, the woman did something that wasn't. There was a dispute between um, two women, and the husband of one of the women sided with the other woman. And uh, Swami afterwards remarked, he said, "Isn't that remarkable?" He said, "How fair-minded he was." He said, "But he shouldn't have done that." <laughs> <laughs> it's not that he should have. He should not that he should have supported his wife and her delusion. But he should have, he should not have sided against her either. He should have just been silent in the face of it. You know? It was a very interesting comment because sometimes it's just, loyalty is the first law. And so we learn a kind of loyalty, but we don't want to have that be a contract of loyalty. Do you understand? And we don't want to be loyal above truth, but still we can be loyal because that's what people need of us. And so you, you have to balance that, but it's, you're training yourself. This is a training ground that you learn to expand appropriately and do the job that's asked of you. And the more we think of it like that, the more free we become. And that's why Swamiji says the more we just commit ourselves in our lives to being expansive, the more it's easy to, to, to run your marriage or your relationship or your family appropriately. Because what you're committed to is being expansive. And therefore, I'm committed to expansion. Now what is the appropriate response? not I'm committed to you and therefore you're committed to me. No, I'm committed to being expansive and this is my job. And so you relate very impersonally, but also at the same time you relate very warmly because because it's a matter of principle. It's not a matter of what can I get out of this. It's just, it's so odd. The secret of a happy marriage is to not care whether you have one or not. And I don't mean that you're indifferent to it, but the, the extent to which you're desperate for it is the extent to which it's very difficult to conduct it properly. And the extent to which you just understand that I'm just going to be as happy as I make myself. And no happier no matter what. And, and the second thing is to just the extent to which you recognize that it's really just about what you come to share. And if something comes back to you, that's great. And I know this is a high standard, but it is a high standard. But you know what? It's the only standard that works. This is like a class we had a few weeks ago and I was saying, this may sound hard to you, but believe me, divorce is much harder. (laughs) And it may sound hard to you to think that I'm not really in this marriage for anything that I get out of it, but you're much lonelier if you're always trying to get something it's not giving you. As soon as you're just in it for the joy of living, because the joy of living is what you're about... Then it actually isn't that difficult because no matter what happens, you just go back to the joy of living and from that point you figured out how to do your job.